Section twenty five of Celebrated Travels and Travellers, Volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Travels and Travellers, Volume three. The Great Explorers and Travellers of the Nineteenth Century by Jules Verne. Second Part, Chapter two, Part one. French circumnavigators one chapter two french circumnavigators the journey of Freycinet, rio de janeiro and its gypsy inhabitants the cape and its wines the bay of sharks the stay at timor ombay island and its cannibal inhabitants the papuan islands the pile dwellings of the alfors a dinner with the governor of guam description of the Marianne Islands and their inhabitants, particulars concerning the Sandwich Islands, Port Jackson and New South Wales, shipwreck in Barclays Sound, the Falkland Islands, return to France, the voyage of the Coquille under the command of Duperry, Martin Vaz and Trinidad, the island of St. Catherine, the independence of Brazil, Barclays Sound and the remains of the Uranie, stay at Concepcion, the civil war in Chile, the Araucanians, discoveries in the dangerous archipelago, stay at Otaheite and New Ireland, the Papuans, stay at Orlan, the Caroline Islands and their inhabitants, scientific results of the expeditions. The expedition under the command of Louis-Claude de Sauce de Fresnay was the result of the leisure which the peace of 1815 brought to the French navy. The idea was started by one of its most adventurous officers, the same who had accompanied Baudin in his survey of the Australian coasts, and to him was entrusted the task of carrying it out. It was the first voyage which had not hydrography alone for its object. The chief aim was to survey the shape of the earth in the southern hemisphere and to make observations in terrestrial magnetism without at the same time omitting to give attention to all natural phenomena and to the manners, customs and languages of the indigenous races. Purely geographical inquiries, though not altogether omitted from the programme, had the least prominent place in it. Among the medical officers of the navy, Freycinet found Messieurs Croix, Gaimard, and Gaudichot, whose attainments in natural history qualified them for being valuable coadjutors, and he also chose to accompany him several distinguished officers who had risen to high rank in the navy, the best known being Duperry, Lamarche, Berat, and Odepeillon, who subsequently became one a member of the Institute, the others superior officers or admirals. No less care was exercised by Freycinet in composing his crew, chiefly of sailors who were also skilled in some trade, so that out of the 120 men who manned the corvette Eurénie, no less than 50 could serve on occasion as carpenters, rope-makers, sail-makers, blacksmiths or other mechanics. The Uranie was amply supplied with stores for two years and provided with all sorts of apparatus of proven utility, iron cisterns for fresh water, 
machines for distilling salt water, preserved provisions, remedies for scurvy, etc. At last, on the 17th of September, 1817, she set sail from Toulon. On board, disguised as a sailor, was the commander's wife, who was not to be deterred from joining her husband by the dangers and hardships of so protracted a voyage. Together with all these provisions for bodily comfort, Freycinet took with him a stock of the best scientific instruments, together with minute instructions from the Institute intended to direct his researches and to suggest the experiments best adapted to promote the progress of science. The Eurénie reached Rio de Janeiro on the 6th of December, having put in at Gibraltar and made a short stay at Tenerife, one of the Canaries, which, as Freycinet wittily observes, were not fortunate islands for his crew, all communication with the land being forbidden by the governors. During their stay at Rio de Janeiro, the officers took a great many magnetical observations and made experiments with the pendulum, while the naturalists scoured the country for new specimens and curiosities, making large and important collections. The original records of the voyage contain a long narrative of the discovery and colonization of Brazil, and detailed information on the customs and manners of the people, on the temperature and the climate, as well as a minute description of the principal buildings and the suburbs of Rio de Janeiro itself. The most curious part of this account is that which touches upon the gypsies, who at that time were to be met with at Rio de Janeiro. Were the descendants of the pariahs of India whence these gypsies without doubt originally came, says Freycinet, they are noted like their ancestors for every vicious practice and criminal propensity, most of them possessing immense wealth, make a great display in dress and in horses, especially at their weddings, which are celebrated with much expense, and they find their chief pleasures either in riotous debauchery or in sheer idleness. Knaves and liars, they cheat as much as they can in trade, and are also clever smugglers. Here is elsewhere these detestable people intermarry only among their own race. They speak a jargon of their own with a peculiar accent. The government most unaccountably tolerates the nuisance of their presence and goes so far as to appropriate to their exclusive use two streets in the neighbourhood of the Campo de Santa Anna. A little further on, the traveller remarks, Anyone who saw Rio de Janeiro only by day would come to the conclusion that the population consisted entirely of Negroes. The respectable classes never go out except in the evening unless compelled by some pressing circumstance or for the performance of religious duties, and it is in the evening that the ladies especially show themselves. During the day all remain indoors, and pass the time between their couches and their looking-glasses. The only places where a man can enjoy the society of the ladies are at the theatres and the churches. During the sail from Brazil to the Cape of Good Hope, Nothing occurred deserving special mention. On the 7th of March, the Uranie anchored in Table Bay. 
after a quarantine of three days the travellers obtained permission to land and were received with a hearty welcome by governor somerset as soon as a place suitable for their reception had been found the scientific instruments were brought on shore and the usual experiments had made with the pendulum and the variations of the magnetic needle observed mrs quire and gaimard the naturalists in company with several officers of the staff made scientific excursions to table mountain and to the famous vineyards of constantia m gaimard observes the vines that we rode amongst are in the midst of alleys of oak and of pine and the vine stems planted at the distance of four feet from one another are not supported by props every year the vines are pruned and the earth about them which is of a sandy nature is turned up we noticed here and there plenty of peaches apricots apples pears citrons as well as small plots cultivated as kitchen gardens on our return m collin insisted on our tasting the several sorts of wine which he produces constantia properly so called both red and white pontac pierre and frontinac the wine produced in other localities which is called cape wine par excellence is manufactured from a muscatel grape of a dark straw colour which seemed to me in flavour preferable to the grape of provence we have just said that there are two sorts of constantia the red and the white they are both produced from muscatel grapes of different colours people at the cape generally prefer frontenac to all the other wines produced from the vintages of constantia exactly a month after quitting the southern extremity of africa the Eurénie cast anchor off port louis in the isle of france which since the treaties of eighteen fifteen has been in the hands of the english the necessity for careening the ship that it might be thoroughly examined and the copper sheathing repaired led to a much longer stay in this port than freycinet had calculated upon but our travellers found no cause to regret the delay for the society of port louis fully sustained its old reputation for generous hospitality the time passed quickly in excursions receptions dinners balls horse races and all sorts of festivities it was therefore not without some regret that the french guests bade adieu to a place where they had been received with so much kindness both by their old compatriots and by those who had so lately been their bitter enemies the stay of the Eurénie at the ile of france had not however been sufficiently long to allow freycinet to investigate many subjects of much interest but this omission was remedied by the polite readiness shown by some of the leading residents in supplying him with valuable papers on the agriculture of the island its commerce its financial position the industrial pursuits and the social condition of the people the correct appreciation of which demanded a more careful and minute examination than a mere passing traveller could possibly give to them since the island had come under english administration it appeared that a number of new roads had been planned out and a policy of reform had supplanted a benumbing system of routine fatal to all activity and progress bourbon was the next place touched at by the Eurani, 
where the supplies of which the travellers stood in need were to be procured from the government stores. She cast anchor off St. Denis on the 19th of July, 1818, remaining in the roadstead of St. Paul until the 2nd of August, when she set sail for the Bay of Sharks on the western shores of Australia. There is little of interest to be noted in connection with the stay at Bourbon, beyond the steady increase of the population and of trade which had taken place during the century preceding the arrival of the French expedition. In 1717, according to Gentil de Babinet, there were living in the island only 900 free people, amongst whom were no more than six white families and 1,100 slaves. At the last census, taken in 1817, these numbers had risen to 14,790 whites, 4,342 free blacks, 49,759 slaves, making a total of 68,898 inhabitants. This large and rapid increase must be attributed partly to the salubrity of the climate, but chiefly to the freedom of trade, of which the island had for some time enjoyed the advantage. After a fortunate voyage of forty days, the Uranie cast anchor at the entrance of the Bay of Sharks on the 12th of September. A party was at once dispatched to Dirk Hartog in order to determine the latitude and longitude of Cape Le Ballon and to bring on board the corvette a certain metal plate which had been left there by the Dutch at a remote period and had been seen by Freycinet in 1801. Whilst this party were away, the two alembics were set to work to distill seawater, which was effected so successfully that, as long as the vessel stayed there, no other water was drunk but that obtained by this process, and all on board were satisfied with it. On landing, the party sent to Dirk Hartog got a view of the natives, who were armed with javelins and clubs, but had not a vestige of clothing. They, however, refused to have any close communications with the white strangers, keeping themselves at a respectful distance, and not handling any of the presents offered them without a previous careful inspection. Although the Bay of Sharks had been minutely explored at the time of the expedition under Baudin, there still remained a hydrographical gap to be filled up on the eastern side of Hamelin Bay, Accordingly, Duperry proceeded there to complete the survey of that part of the coast. At the same time, Gaimard, the naturalist, not disposed to rest satisfied with the interviews which as yet he had been able to obtain with the natives of the country, whom the sound of the firearms had summarily dispersed, decided upon penetrating into the interior to gain some information respecting their mode of life. His companion and himself lost their way, as also had Riche in 1792 upon Newtsland, and for three days they underwent severe sufferings from thirst, not being able to find a single rivulet or spring in the country. The expedition were well pleased when the inhospitable shores of Endrach disappeared from view. 
they had a pleasant passage in lovely weather and over an unruffled sea to the island of timor where on the ninth of october the uranie cast anchor in the roadstead of coupang and the travellers met with a cordial reception from the portuguese authorities but they found that the prosperity which had made the colony an object of wonder and admiration to the french travellers who had visited it with Baudin had passed away the rajah of amanobang the district where the sandal tree grows in such abundance who was formerly a tributary prince was carrying on war to gain independence the hostilities which were proceeding were not only detrimental to the interests of the colony but also made it very difficult for Freycinet to purchase the commodities of which he stood in need. Some of the staff set off to pay a visit to the Rajah Peters de Banacassi, whose residence was not more than three-quarters of a league from Coupang. Peters, then eighty years of age, must have been a remarkably fine man. He gave them an audience surrounded by his attendants, who treated him with profound respect, and among whom were conspicuous several warriors of gigantic stature. The dwelling that served for the royal palace was rudely constructed, yet the French travellers saw with lively surprise that articles of luxury were plentiful, and they observed also some muskets of good manufacture and great value. Notwithstanding the excessive heat of the climate, the thermometer rising in the open air to 45 degrees, and in the shade to 33, and even to 35, the commander and his officers carried on with unremitting zeal the observations and surveys which it was the object of the expedition to make. A few fell victims to their own imprudence, for in defiance of the earnest warnings of Freycinet, some of the young officers and the seamen chose to sally forth in the middle of the day, and with the view of fortifying themselves against the injurious effects of their dangerous freak, drank and ate plentifully of cold water and sour fruits. The result was that in a short time five of the most imprudent were confined to their hammocks with dysentery. This necessitated a departure from Timor, so the Uranie weighed anchor and set sail on the 23rd of October. At first the corvette sailed rapidly along the north coast of Timor for the purpose of making a survey, but when she had reached the narrowest part of the channel of Ombay, she encountered such violent currents that, the winds being slight and contrary, it was only with great difficulty she was able to regain the course which she had lost during the calm. No less than nineteen days were wasted in this trying situation though certain of the officers took advantage of the delay to land on the nearest point of the island of Bombay, where the coast had a very inviting appearance. They went on shore near a village called Batuka, and advanced to meet a body of the natives armed with shields and cuirasses made of buffalo skin, and carrying bows, arrows, and daggers. Savages though they were, they had quite the air of warriors, and were not at all afraid of firearms. On the contrary, they argued that the loading of the gun caused loss of time, for while that operation was going on, they could fire off a great number of arrows. 
Gaimar writes. The points of the arrows were of hard wood or of bone, and some of iron. The arrows themselves, displayed fan-wise, were fastened on the left side of the warrior to the belt of his sword or dagger. Most of these people wore bundles of palm leaves, slit so as to allow red or black-coloured strips of the same to be passed through to hold them together, which were attached to the belt or the right thigh. The rustling sound produced with every movement of the wearers of this singular ornament, increased by knocking against the cuirass or the buckler, with the addition of the tinkling of little bells which also formed part of the warrior's equipment, altogether made such a jumble of discordant sounds that we could not refrain from laughing. Far from taking offence, so on Bayan friends joined heartily in our merriment. Monsieur Arago, footnote Jacques Arago, brother of the illustrious astronomer, end of footnote, greatly excited their astonishment by performing some sleight-of-hand tricks. We then took our way straight to the village of Batuka, which was situated on a rising ground. In passing one of their cottages, we happened to see about a score of human jawbones suspended from the roof, and anxious to get possession of one or two, I offered the most valuable articles I had about me in exchange. The answer was, Palami, they are sacred. We ascertained afterwards that these were the jawbones of their enemies, preserved as trophies of victory. This excursion derived greater interest from the circumstance of the island of Ombe having been up to that time rarely visited by Europeans, and the few vessels that had effected any landing brought mournful accounts of the warlike and ferocious temper of the natives, and even in some instances of their cannibal propensities. Thus, in 1802, the merchant ship Rose had her small boat carried off, and the crew were detained as prisoners by the savages. Ten years later, the captain of the ship Inarco, who landed by himself, received several arrow wounds. Again, in 1817, an English frigate sent the cutter ashore for the purpose of getting wood, when a scrimmage took place between the crew and the natives, which ended in the former being killed and eaten. The day after, an armed sloop was dispatched in quest of the missing crew, but nothing was found save some fragments of the cutter and the bloody remains of the unfortunate men. In view of these facts, the French travellers must be congratulated on having escaped being entrapped by the savage cannibals, which would undoubtedly have been attempted had the Eugenie stayed long enough at Ombay. On the 17th of November, the anchor was let go at Dili. After the customary interchange of compliments with the Portuguese governor, Freycinet made known the requirements of the expedition, and received a friendly assurance that the necessary provisions should be instantly forthcoming. The reception given to all the members of the expedition was both hearty and liberal, and when Freycinet took his leave, the governor, wishing that he should carry away some souvenir of his visit, presented him with two boys and two girls, of the ages of six and seven, natives of Thalacor, a kingdom in the interior of Timor. 
To ensure the acceptance of this present, the governor, Don José Pinto Alcoforado de Zavado e Souza, stated that the race to which the children belonged was quite unknown in Europe. In spite of all the strong and conclusive reasons that Freycinet gave to explain why he felt compelled to decline the present, he was obliged to take charge of one of the little boys, who subsequently received the name of Joseph Antonio in baptism, but when sixteen years old died of some scrofulous disease at Paris. On a first examination it would appear that the population of Timor belonged altogether to the Asiatic race. But so far as any reliance can be placed upon somewhat extended researches, there is reason to think that in the unfrequented mountains in the centre of the island there exists a race of negroes with woolly hair and savage manners, of the type of the indigenous races of New Guinea and New Ireland, whom one is led to consider the primitive population. This line of research commenced at the close of the 18th century by an Englishman of the name of Crawford, has been in our time carried forward with striking results by the labours of the learned doctors Broca and I. Ami, to the latter of whom the reading public are indebted for the pleasing and instructive papers on primitive populations, which have appeared in Nature and in the journals of the Royal Geographical Society. After leaving Timor, the Eurénie proceeded towards the Strait of Bourou, and in passing between the islands of Weta and Roma, got sight of the picturesque island of Gases, clothed in the brightest and thickest verdure imaginable. The corvette was then drifted by currents almost as far as the island of Pisang, near which she fell in with three dows, manned by natives of the island of Guebi. These people have an olive complexion, broad, flat noses and thick lips, some are strong-looking, robust and athletic, others are slender and weakly in appearance, and others again thick-set and repulsive-looking. The only clothing worn by the majority at this time was a pair of drawers fastened with a handkerchief around the waist. A landing was effected on the little island of Pisang. It was found to be of volcanic origin, and the soil, formed from the decomposition of trachytic lava, was evidently very fertile. From Pisang the corvette made her way among islands, till then scarcely known, to Rawe where she cast anchor at noon on the 16th of December. This island, though small, is inhabited, and though our navigators were often visited by the natives of Waigyu, opportunities for studying this species of the human family have been rare. Moreover, it ought to be mentioned that through ignorance of the language of the indigenous tribes, and the difficulty of making them understand through the medium of Malayan, of which they know only a few words, even those few opportunities have not been turned to much account. As soon as a suitable position was found, the instruments were set up, and the usual physical and astronomical observations were made in conjunction with geographical researches. End of section 25